2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, Stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of this battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to this city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesh? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the, from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did he get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out 
And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. But we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What would you say if you, um, if you threw away $139 million? That's a stupid question, isn't it? Because it's impossible to imagine throwing away $139 million. I mean, who's ever done that? Well, it turns out this guy did. You can see on the screen a photo of a man named Steve Wynn, who was the owner of one of the world's great paintings. It was, a, it was Picasso's La Rive. And in 2006, Steve Wynn sold that painting for $139 million. And so he thought he'd celebrate, and he had a, a bunch of friends over, and one of them happened to be the Hollywood director, Nora Ephron. She directed Sleepless in Seattle, What Women Want. She's pretty famous. I'll let her tell the story. She said, on Sunday after lunch, Wynne took us into his office to show us the painting. And he raised his hand to show us something about the painting. And in that moment, his elbow crashed backward through the canvas. There was a terrible noise. Wynne stepped away from the painting and there smack in the middle of Mary Therese Walter's plump forearm was a black hole the size of a silver dollar, or to be more exactly, the size of the tip of Steve Wynne's elbow, with two three-inch long rips coming off it in either direction. Oh no, he said. Look what I've done. The rest of us were speechless. The word money was mentioned by someone, or maybe it was the word deal. Wynne said, this has got nothing to do with money. The money means nothing to me. It's that I had this masterpiece in my care, and I've damaged it. Now, for a start, can you imagine doing that? But then can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine saying that $140 million means nothing? But that was Steve Wynn's point, wasn't it? The tragedy was not the money. The tragedy was seeing a masterpiece destroyed in one stupid act. And this morning, that's what we see. One stupid, sinful act all but destroys God's masterpiece. 
So last week was all the good news. Last week we saw the beginning of David's golden age when David rose to become first Judah's king and then Israel's king and then he became the king of the world as they knew it. It was David's golden age. And really, if you were here, you'll remember the climax of David's golden age was God's promise in 2 Samuel 7. So God made David maybe the greatest promise in history. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who'll come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who'll build a house, a temple for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, or your dynasty, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's the climax of the golden age and really the great point of it is the golden age looks to continue david's throne his house is going to continue forever it's a great promise isn't it and it's what makes chapter 11 just so incredibly tragic david puts his fist through the masterpiece have a look in 11 verse 1 again in the springtime at the time when kings go off to war David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite's army. Now, it's just a small thing, but already you can tell things are starting to go wrong. It's when the kings are meant to be going out to war and David is staying home instead of leading his army. Already there's a hint there. Things aren't going to go well. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David takes another man's wife into his bed. He commits adultery which is a terrible thing. Now, of course, adultery has become fairly common in our age, isn't it? I read this week one estimate, and it only ever is an estimate because people, uh, people don't necessarily tell you exactly what's going on, but one estimate is that during the course of a marriage, 60% of American men and 40% of American women commit adultery at some point. Now, of course, that's what happens in a culture when you devalue marriage. If all a marriage is is a contract between two people, well, Let's face it, people break contracts all the time, right? But marriage is not just a contract between two people. Marriage is God joining two people together. Marriage is when God joins two people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Marriage is actually when God changes your identity. He takes two separate people and makes one joined entity out of them. That's a big deal, isn't it? What God joins, let no one separate. But of course, as we read this passage at the moment, it's also not hard to think of what's going on in our culture, is it? It's hard not to think of issues of consent and abuse from this passage, isn't it? 
That is, we're not necessarily told that David forced Bathsheba here, but there is a massive power imbalance, isn't there? It'd be very hard to resist the king. It's easy to imagine that Bathsheba felt like she had very little choice. And in fact, the language kind of suggests this as well. In verse 4, the language is that David sent messengers who took Bathsheba, which is exactly what Samuel warned that the kings would do back in chapter 8. Samuel warned that the kings would take their sons and daughters, and David reached out and took Bathsheba, which I guess shows us that men behaving horribly is not a new thing. In fact, it's a human thing. Because this language goes right the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Eve saw and reached out and took what she shouldn't take in Genesis 3. Both men and women have a history of taking what we shouldn't when we don't fear God. But that's not all that David does. He doesn't just reach out and take, he then covers his tracks with murder. Firstly, he tries to trick Bathsheba's husband Uriah into sleeping with her. And when that doesn't work, have a look in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out the front where the fighting is fiercest. And then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. David kills a man just to cover up his own sin and save his neck. And look, to get a sense of the seriousness of David's crime, we actually need to go back to the benchmark. That is, remember when we started the books of Samuel, Hannah and her song. Hannah's song was the benchmark that everyone gets measured by in the books of Samuel. So what Hannah said was, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry... Hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who's had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. See, God is the one who breaks the bow of the arrogant warrior and strengthens the weak. God is the one who makes the proud, rich person hungry and feeds the pauper. God is the one who gives children to humble Hannah and brought shame on Peninnah. And the lesson to learn from that song is don't be arrogant in your strength. Don't be proud. Don't be conceited. Humble yourself before God. It's not by strength that one prevails, even for God's king. And the thing is, up until now, David's actually matched Hannah's song, hasn't he? He's been humble. He's been obedient. He's trusted God. But now, adultery, murder, this is supreme arrogance. David has made himself into the powerful, rich, proud, arrogant warrior whose bow is broken. And so have a look in chapter 12, which we haven't read yet, how Nathan describes David's sin. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David... And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. 
He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come. David burned with anger against the man. And said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You can almost hear Hannah's song reverberating through that, can't you? David's been the rich, arrogant man. He thought he could prevail through strength. He thought he could buy his way out of murder. He thought he could buy his way out of trouble. It's tragic. And look, I think we can, just at a human level, I think we can actually see three lessons for us in David's failure, just at a, at a purely human level. The first lesson we see is the myth of human goodness and sufficiency. See, there is a way of looking at people in our world that fundamentally people are good. If only we can get them to follow their heart. If you just follow your heart, if you just be truly yourself, then you won't go wrong. And so as a society, the gospel that we keep preaching to people is just be true to yourself. Just live out who you really are. And if we can do that, society will be great. Well, in this passage, David is truly himself. David follows his heart. He sees, he wants, he takes. And the result is adultery and lies and murder. It's not that David goes from being a good person to being a bad person. He's just a person all the way through. And while we're all capable of doing good and wonderful and noble and self-sacrificing things, we are all also capable of adultery, lies, and murder. Especially leaders, right? Our society seems really caught in a bind when it comes to leaders. We know they're flawed. We know our leaders are often corrupt, and yet we yearn for them to be better, don't we? We yearn for a prime minister who is noble and who's honest and who's courageous. We really want bosses to actually be a cut above everyone else. And sometimes they will be. But isn't what David does here exactly what human leaders do? Politicians lie and cheat. Presidents and prime ministers will abuse their power and then they'll cover it up. And they'll get, then they'll get impeached and they'll get accused and then they'll get acquitted as all part of some political game that has nothing to do with justice and everything to do with power. Teachers will have an affair with students. It's the nature of human leaders to be frail in their character. And it's true in church as well. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've had church leaders fail you, haven't you? I can almost guarantee you that in the life of your Christian experience, one of your church leaders is going to commit adultery. Or you're going to have pastors who will steal money or fall away. And we mustn't be surprised, because pastors are only human, aren't they? That's why you have to ensure that there are things like codes of conduct, 
and guidelines and transparency, but even more than that, there needs to be relationship. You need to ask your leaders about their lives. You need to ask us about the state of our marriage. You need to ask us about the state of our finances. I've said a number of times and different times people have taken them up. Anybody in our church is free to ask to look at my finances. You're free to look at my bank account. You're free to look at my, at my tax statements because you must be certain that we're honest. And it's not because you don't trust us. It's just that you don't trust us. <laughs> at least not entirely. First thing David shows us is the myth of human goodness and sufficiency. But the second thing we actually see here is that failure and sin is not the end. The beautiful part of this story is that David repents and he gets forgiven and restored. See, as soon as Nathan confronts him, David admits his guilt. Look in verse 13. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in fact, when you read Psalm 51, you see just how deeply repentant David is. I think you're about to see it on the screen. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. What we're getting here is a little insight into David's heart and mind. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for you know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear, and hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. See, David, when he's confronted with his sin, is deeply, immediately repentant. And he immediately goes back to Hannah's path. And look at what Nathan says to him in verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Isn't that lovely? David's forgiven. God takes away his sin. And at this point, we're actually just seeing the beautiful news of the gospel, aren't we? David didn't know it, but actually it was Jesus who took away his sin, wasn't it? That is, the reason Nathan could say, the Lord has taken away your sin, is because a thousand years after this event, Jesus would die on the cross. And on that cross, David's sin was put on Jesus' shoulders. And your sin and my sin which means it doesn't matter what we've done, whether it's adultery or lies or murder, there's actually hope. Jesus has taken away our sin. And it's just such wonderful, wonderful news. Because we also now live in a culture where there is no such thing as forgiveness, is there? When someone commits a, a crime, a transgression against our culture, there is no such thing as forgiveness in our culture, is it? People get pursued and hounded and judged and persecuted and punished until they're blotted out of our society because there's no room anymore for forgiveness. But not with the gospel. In the gospel, there's no such thing as a destroyed masterpiece. There's no such thing as an unforgivable person. So no matter what you've done, whether it is lies or adultery or even murder, come back to God. 
your sin can be taken away. That's kind of what the end of chapter 12 is all about. We didn't read it, but at the end of chapter 12, David does what he should have done in the first place. He leads his army into battle. He was never meant to be at home. He was meant to be leading his army into battle. And when he does, God gives him a mighty victory. And I think that's there as a sign of God's grace. It's a sign that there's hope. But the third thing we learn from David's sin here is that even with forgiveness, earthly sin still has earthly consequences. David's sin still has consequences. And so have a look in chapter 12, verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you, I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who's close to you and he'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but, beca but because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. See, even though David's forgiven... God still disciplines him. And the discipline is poetically fair. David killed Uriah by the sword. And so now the sword is never going to leave David's house. David slept with another man's wife. And now someone else is going to sleep with his wives. And to make it even worse, that someone is going to come from David's own house. And then tragically, David will lose his son. Just as he denied Uriah the chance to father children, David is going to lose his own son. And we didn't read it, but chapter 12 contains this desperately heartbreaking story of David's son dying. See, even though we're forgiven, sin does have earthly consequences. We all carry the bruises of people who've hurt us, don't we? even after we've forgiven them. And the people we hurt carry bruises sometimes for decades. The lies that we tell sometimes take decades to rebuild trust. The crimes that we commit sometimes lead to losing our jobs or even losing our freedom. Sometimes marriages take decades to heal. Sometimes they never can. This is one of the things that actually teaches us not to sin, right? See, it's easy for us to think, well, it doesn't actually matter if I sin here because it's okay, Jesus will forgive me. It doesn't matter if I lie here. It doesn't matter if I steal. It doesn't matter if I look at pornography. It doesn't matter if I commit adultery because Jesus is going to forgive me. Well, look, it's true that Jesus will forgive me if I truly repent, but it still matters because lies hurt other people. Stealing hurts other people. 
Porn and adultery destroys lives and damage me. On top of that, if I do those things blithely, my Father may discipline me to teach me to take sin seriously. He may show me the full damaging effect of my sin. Even with forgiveness, there are still earthly consequences. And David's whole sorry episode here shows us that with awful clarity, doesn't it? And so by the time we reach the end of chapter 12, we're kind of left asking a question. What's the picture we're supposed to get here? God created this masterpiece, especially in chapter 7. Is the masterpiece destroyed? Or is it somehow still intact? Are we still in David's golden age or has sin somehow ruined it all? What's going to happen to the great promises of chapter 7? Remember, God said, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you. And he said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Is all of that still going to come true? We're still in the golden age. Well, I guess you could say yes, but also no. From here on in, Israel have kind of a gold-plated age. It's not really the 18-carat, fully-fledged thing, but it's kind of a gold-plated age, because after David does come Solomon, and Solomon does build God's temple, and Solomon expands God's kingdom, and the Queen of Sheba comes, and she admires Solomon's wisdom and splendor. It kind of is a golden age with Solomon, but almost immediately Solomon falls into his father's sin. And so too, in 1 Kings 11, Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you mustn't intermarry with them because they'll surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. See, Solomon turns out to be exactly like his father David. He commits David's sin, but on a grander scale now. Not just one woman, but a thousand women. And his wives lead him astray. You see, it's a golden age, but really it's a gold-plated age. At one level, you could say that Solomon is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He builds the temple. He has an enduring kingdom. But at another level, you'd say, actually, we're waiting for a greater fulfillment. And of course, the one we're waiting for is Jesus. And this is actually a good point for us to stop and to kind of think here about Old Testament promises and the way they're fulfilled. We often kind of think there is a promise in the Old Testament and it's fulfilled directly by Jesus. So there's the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Where is it fulfilled? Jesus. And sometimes... Old Testament promises are like that. But more often than not, Old Testament promises have a partial fulfillment there and then that falls short and then points us to Jesus. So Solomon is a partial fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He builds the temple, he is a great ruler, but he just so obviously falls short. Clearly 2 Samuel 7 is pointing to someone beyond it. And so one way of thinking about Old Testament promises is they're a little bit like a mountain range where you've got one peak behind the next peak, behind the next peak, leading to a great peak in the distance. 
Solomon promises this eternal kingdom to David. And uh, God promises this eternal king to David. Solomon is kind of like the first peak. He kind of looks like 2 Samuel 7, but he falls short. And then you get other kings that look like 2 Samuel 7 as well. Josiah was a great king. Hezekiah was a great king, but each of them falls short. And every time we see a king fall short, we're getting closer to the great peak, which is Jesus. That's why there's that little bit in 2 Samuel 7 that doesn't seem to make sense. So God says to David, I will be his father and he'll be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And whenever you read that, you think, well, how how can that be Jesus? Because Jesus never does anything wrong. How can God be talking about Jesus here? And the answer is he's not. He's talking about David and he's talking about Solomon and he's talking about Rehoboam. And he's talking about every other king before Jesus who does wrong and is punished. But when we reach Jesus, the great peak in the distance, Jesus won't do anything wrong. He will be punished with a rod. It's just going to be for other people's crimes. Do you see how Old Testament prophecy works? 2 Samuel 7 is this series of peaks leading up to the great peak in the distance of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus really is the golden age. Jesus is everything that David and Solomon promised to be but weren't he's the king that they hinted at but never really was because jesus doesn't sin like david sinned and he doesn't commit adultery and he doesn't commit idolatry like solomon did jesus is obedient and so when you have jesus being baptized god says this is my son the great fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, when, when God at Jesus' baptism says, this is my son, we are meant to think, ah, 2 Samuel 7. But notice, this is a son that God is well pleased with because Jesus is the obedient son Solomon never was. Solomon worshipped idols, his heart was led astray. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, Satan tempts Jesus with everything God promised back in 2 Samuel 7, all the kingdoms of the world, but Jesus resists. He's obedient to God. He's everything Solomon and David were meant to be, but weren't. He's everything 2 Samuel 7 promised, but better, because Jesus doesn't suffer the rod for his own sins. He suffers it for other people. And in fact, you know, Jesus' death, this is really beautiful. Jesus' death is the moment when you see just how obedient he was. Jesus' death was actually the ultimate act of obedience. Just have a look how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus' death. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sins you weren't pleased, and then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll, I've come to do your will, O God. The author of Hebrews put Psalm 40 into Jesus' mouth. Psalm 40 was originally about the idea that God doesn't so much want sacrifice as he wants people who obey. God wants obedience more than sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews points to the moment of Jesus' death. And verse 5, he says, he puts these words in Jesus' mouth, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And verse 7, here I am, I've come to do your will. 
Because Jesus' death was the ultimate moment of obedience. Where in the face of the horror of God's judgment, Jesus took the body God had prepared for him and he did God's will with it. And he went to the cross and he suffered the rod and he suffered the floggings inflicted by men where he wasn't disobedient like his forefathers were. Isn't Jesus extraordinary? See, in Jesus, the golden age actually comes because after his death, God raises him up and now he's sitting at God's right hand forever. And unlike David and Solomon, Jesus will never muck it up. There's no chance that this golden age of Jesus is going to be cut short because we can rely on Jesus to never muck it up. Has it ever occurred to you that our salvation doesn't just depend on Jesus being obedient in his lifetime. Our salvation depends on Jesus being obedient for eternity. Our salvation depends on Jesus sitting at God's right hand as a human being and never, ever sinning from here into eternity. Because if Jesus was to commit just one sin, we would have a king like David. If Jesus was to commit one sin, we'd have a king like Solomon. But Jesus is the obedient one who didn't just obey in his life, he will obey into eternity, which gives us massive assurance of heaven, doesn't it? Just think, if Jesus was to commit one sin, God's king would no longer be righteous. Our hope of eternity rests on Jesus' obedience. And that hope is sure. Heaven is certain. And actually, you know, that's what 1 Samuel 11 and 12 really are here to teach us. We can learn the lessons of human frailty. It's great to see the beautiful forgiveness. It's, it's good to learn the lesson of consequence. But actually, what this passage boils down to is admiration of Jesus. It's great to draw the parallel between David and us. But really, the parallel to draw is between David and Jesus. Between David's sin and Jesus' obedience. David shatters the golden age. Jesus' golden age is going to be eternal. Let's pray. Our great God... we confess to you that we are very much like David. We see, we reach out, we take, we cover up our crimes. And we praise you that just like David, we too can be forgiven. We praise you that just as you took away his sin, you've taken away our sin and placed it on Jesus' shoulders. We thank you that in David we see a very human model of sin and forgiveness and it's so wonderful. But we praise you that we also see a model of kingship here. We praise you that Jesus is the king David never was. We praise you that Jesus not only was sinless in his life but will be sinless into eternity. That he is perfectly obedient. We praise him and we adore him and we admire him. And we thank you that one day we'll be transformed to be like him. We thank you that our hope of heaven 
Our hope of the golden age is secure in Christ. Amen.